John, you good? I'm good. Let's roll, baby. Ladies and gentlemen, leaders and fighters for freedom and liberty and the American dream, the best is yet to come. All right, folks, let's do this. Um, welcome back to Build It, the non-league soccer fo- podcast. Um, joining me as ever is Mr. John Hall from DeKalb County United. John, good, ev- Hello, good afternoon. Good evening. Hi, John. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Um, and our guest this week um, is one Mark Bradley from the Fan Experience Company. Hi, Mark. Hi, Hi, Nick. Hi, John. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, Mark, as befits um, our introductions these days, I'm going to hand it over to you to give the elevator speech of who you are and what it is you do. Um so, because I just mangle it. So, over to you, my friend. Um, <laughs> as a football, I always think I should start with the question that people in England ask when they meet somebody in the pub, you know, to break the ice. It's, you know, which team do you support? And, and, and mine is Sunderland. And not a lot of people globally knew who we were until the Netflix series. Um, and part two Netflix series, which charted our collapse from the Premier League and drop and, and desperate attempts and unsuccessful attempts until last season to get out of the third tier. Uh, we're now back in the second tier and we now hear that there's a third series, which is going to chart our success in the playoffs, which is we've never managed in our history. My dad took me to my first game in 1969. I was six year old. We played Chelsea. It was nil nil. We didn't have a single shot on goal. It was one of the worst games I've ever seen. We got relegated at the end of that season and I felt sorry for my dad. Apparently, I'm told that I felt so sorry for him. I started supporting the team. And and so there's the introduction. So that's the kind of, I guess that's the um, the football side of it. Um, the business side, very briefly, um, a normal path. I worked in retail banking, you know, banks and building societies. Nick will remember the old building society term. And um, I ended up being the customer experience guy, um, more by luck than judgment. That eventually led me, um, after I left this bank, to get really interested in in customer experience generally. And I wrote a book called Inconvenience Stores, which is one year in UK customer service. That was back in 2004. And I guess what it was was a like something like you know 180 page mystery shop, but by uh, a real family just going about their day and collecting together some of the stories with the emphasis on humour. And as uh, Nick is probably aware in Britain, we're not brilliant at customer service. Um, we try, but, you know, we don't, don't seem to get it get it right. And, um, and that, strangely enough, that book gave me and Anna, my other half, the idea of starting our own business where we would actually use my kind of writing and storytelling skills plus real customers to tell stories about their experiences. We were thinking actually about leisure and hotels and holidays to start with um, and use that as a way, if you like, to get in front of the directors, to get in front of the executive and the leaders and say, here are the opportunities. If only you were to you know, lift the profile of customer engagement in your business. And then a really strange thing happened that um, in, in, a, in a small, I, I'd done a, 
a small consultancy role before that. And we did some work for the Premier League. Um, this was around the time that the football task force had, had come into play. And the Premier League were trying to focus their club's attention on treating fans better. And so my customer experience skills were being drawn upon. But I think mostly the fact that they knew I was a, a football fan. So I wasn't going to be like, I don't know, a McKinsey consultant who didn't know anything about football, but knew everything about change management and things like that. And it was a little bit of a, I didn't see it as a niche. I just saw it as an absolutely a, a gift to be able to talk to people that worked at football clubs and, and actually walk through the main door of the stadium. And that's kind of where it all started. We started the business 2005. Almost immediately, there was this weird turn where we ended up working with the, um, the Football League, now the EFL, and everything sprang from that. Cool. All right. Um, you meant, I, I feel like just in that, that um, piece alone, you've used the term, terms fan engagement and fan experience interchangeably. Yeah. Um, we had a colleague of yours, or certainly an acquaintance of yours, um, Kevin Ryan, a while back, who runs, who runs. Um, his thing is fan engagement. Right. Yes. That's fair. Yeah. How would you differentiate fan engagement from fan experience? Well, I mean, uh, to start with, I wouldn't I wouldn't be too concerned well, about the, you know, uh, it's not. It's not like I'm being defensive of the term or anything, but I came into football from the customer engagement business, you know, and as John will know, in America, you know, it's it's a it's a big part. You get vice president, customer relations, you get um, customer experience directors. It's a really big part. Businesses in America are designed to create advocacy among their customer base. It's intrinsically built into the design of the organization. It's less common in British organizations. It's becoming more common, but it's totally absent in football. At least it was when, when I first started working. So in effect, when I say fan engagement, I'm simply taking the term customer engagement and applying it to football or to sport where a fan's there. Ultimately, it's it's everything that an organization does to secure the emotional engagement of the customer in the wider sense of the word. So when over the years and I got that Barcelona um, study that you did, um, that forced me to confront the question, how do you define it in one sentence? And that's when I thought the idea of saying everything we do to understand, to protect and to grow the fans emotional investment in the club. And I think that's as close as I can get um, to it. Um, so I use fan engagement as a catch-all term. Kevin uses it probably more correctly as one of I, – I see fan engagement being that, and it's a sustainable way of growing clubs. And to me, there are four elements to it, one of which is engagement and dialogue, which is what Kevin focuses on. So I would – you know, we – uh, if you go back to that definition, that comes from customer engagement. So in every other business where there's a customer, um, when you go back to the McKinsey world and the world of strategic consulting, when they're trying to bring about, um, they're trying to change the focus of an organization and, and help it become customer focused, they'll usually they'll usually think about four or five you know, core dimensions. They'll talk about brand and identity and values and leadership. You know, that's one. What does the club, you know, what does the business mean? What does it stand for? What what are its values? What, you know, what, when you peel away everything we do, what what is there at the middle? There's the, the bit that Kevin does, the, you know, the, the customer intelligence. What do we know about our customer base? What's important to them? What drives them to us? What keeps them with us? 
what do we know about them right now? Dashboards, et cetera, et cetera, you know, net promoter, all of this. You've then got the fan experience, which is in any, in, in any other business would be service delivery. So the actual service itself, fan experience. And then finally, there's the cultural element, and that's the people and the extent to which the people are bought into what you're trying to do as an organization. And I guess I could, uh, if I traced, see, I came into football in 2005 with all of this strategic management stuff in my head. And I thought, oh, it's simply going to be a case of overlaying that into the club, showing them how it works, up and running. But, of course, it wasn't like that. You know, when I, when we first did our assessments, and I don't know if John knows this, but we did, um, we were asked by the EFL, our first piece of work as, as a family. So this is me and Anna and two kids who were probably nine and seven to visit 30 consecutive games throughout the 2006-07 season. So the idea there was to do what we did as a business. We were going to be that customer, be that new fan, be that new family going to football for the first time. Certainly was the case for my other half and for, for our kids. And we were going to report back. That's basically, um, <clears throat> excuse me, basically what we did. Any idea I had that the answer was basically upskilling the strategic management awareness of the people in the clubs was quickly exploded by some of those early experiences. You know, like the the the, lady, the, the women's toilet just not being, not working, not open in a ground where there might be 15,000 people. You know, we had, oh, I mean, you know, one day I will write a book about it, but it was 80% shocking, 10% okay, and 10% excellent. That was basically what, what we found. Um, so I kind of put all that stuff to the side and thought, we just need to get back to the experience. We need to start looking at fan experience. We need to start providing clubs with feedback on what it's like, the different types of fans, new fans, families with kids, disabled supporters, et cetera, et cetera. And hopefully that, that original idea that I told, talked to you about at the start, that would act as a catalyst, you know, to, to get them to, to do it. And if you'll permit me, I'll explain. It wasn't me. It was a, it was a, the guy who was working at the EFL, as it was the Football League in 2006, really um, lovely lad called Darren Bernstein. As he'll tell you, he's not from the rich Bernsteins in Manchester. And Darren was working there as be something like head of support services. And he thought that there had to be a better way of getting the clubs to take this seriously than simply putting them on a seminar, you know, sending them a booklet sending them some information, putting them on a course. And he'd felt that if we were to do that exercise as a family and we were then to stand in front of the clubs or somehow bring that whole story to life, they would sit up and take notice. And his, his masterstroke was to um, organise two seminars, which in itself sounds pretty innocuous. How is that going to change things? But what we did was we took over two stadiums. So we took over Huddersfield Town Stadium in the north which is about six miles from where I am now, and Wickham Wanderers in the south. We told the various club representatives that we're going to cut, they were going to come to a seminar called, you know, a walk through the family experience. We'd done some research. We were going to share, you know, the the, the results of that research and what what we could do differently. And um, so what Darren did was he hired a troop of actors so that we could actually bring the experiences that we'd had to life for the people at the clubs. So we had the actual staff from Huddersfield Town who were fantastic in their roles, but we also added to their roles actors who were going to play up some of the 
worst experiences we'd seen when we'd done that little uh, family exercise. So to cut a long story short, it was incredibly effective because they didn't realize, even though we were giving them monopoly money to go and, you know, go to the club shop where somebody was going to give them dreadful experience. You know, we had a car park attendant who was wearing shades and, you know, headphones and wouldn't, you know, pay attention to anybody. We had a steward who made an inappropriate comment to one of the women that was coming to the course. The toilet sign was the wrong way. The programs were on the ground. We served hot coffee to half the people, cold coffee to the other half. You know, and we did all of the things that we'd seen. None of them said anything as they gathered and they did all of these things. And, you know, that was the point when, when, the, when it dawned on them that we're actually, they were actually surrounded by actors. The penny dropped. And what happened was that that and a combination of the feedback that we then provided to the clubs got it meant that we had a few clubs that actually said, right, this is it. This is such a big opportunity for us. Cardiff City, a very good example, because um, not anything down to anything they'd done themselves, but they had a reputation. You know, ex the external perception was that it was a it was a kind of a haven of, uh, of antisocial behaviour and hooliganism. They used the opportunity immediately to transform perceptions of the club. So they rigged, they rigged the automated turnstile in the Cardiff City Stadium so that if a family came through who were on the database and it was one of the kids' birthday that weekend, then three red lights would flash on the inside of the turnstile. Uh, a family liaison person, you know, at the club would come and greet the family, say, at someone's birthday today, you know, they'd get a gift, they'd get taken to sit in the dugout during the pre-match warm-up, which is sacred ground, you know, just a fantastic experience. They'd get taken to meet the manager, they'd get a little tour of the stadium. And, um, you know... The data shows that it worked because in 2009, they had 459 season ticket holders in their family stand. By 2012, and this is before they reached the Premier League, 2012, they had 7,200 people in the family stand. Now, I don't know what that is, 1,800%, something like that, but it's a remarkable example of what happens when you throw yourself fully into it. And it, it comes full circle in, in the most wonderful of ways because Darren, is now an assessor, among other things. He's doing a doctorate. He's um, He teaches at UCFB, which is a football-specific um, university in the UK. But he's also come and joined our assessment team. And he went to a game a couple of weeks ago where he had just the most incredible experience through all of the different touch points. So basically, they want to control, um, they want to, What's the word I'm looking for? They want to make sure there's a good family atmosphere in the family stand. So they ask people to telephone if you're booking tickets in the family stand. Of course, that gives them the opportunity to then get back to that family and welcome them. So he then gets a welcome call from the club. He gets an invitation to meet an hour and a half before kickoff. They then take him and his son for a tour of the club. It has the most incredible uh, family stand you've ever seen. All of the activities in the concourse. They've even invented superheroes for the girls and the boys' toilets to help them with hygiene. I think it's Captain Hygiene and something or other. On his way back, he got a call from the club to ask what he'd, you know, how he'd felt about it. This is a club with about 20,000 people in the stadium. You know, and it's because they decided that's what they wanted to do. And that has its roots in that exercise back in 2005, yeah. 2006. First 10 years of the Family Excellence Awards, which it's now become. So it's a an annual program where we send um, each club, they get two assessments a season, and um, we they aim to get a certain level where they can achieve family excellence status. In the first 10 seasons, we saw an increase, an estimated increase of 
37% in junior attendance across the league, which is somewhere around the 6 million mark because it's 18 million at the moment, you know, across that whole season aggregate thing. So everything that I thought I knew, that, that experience of the Family Excellence Awards really helped me refine, you know, what the opportunity was. And um, I guess that's, mm-hmm. that's, you know, that, that's what, that's what gave us the impetus to think, actually, we'll stay in football because yeah. there are so many opportunities here. And um, the first league that we worked with after England was the Scottish League, Scottish Premier League, SPFL as it is now. We did some work in Ireland. Um, but we've done, you know, women's football around Europe, Norway, Denmark. We've worked with the Eredivisie. We've worked um, with the Superliga in Denmark, uh, Moldova's National League. Um, also uh, the top league in Estonia, you know, where the crowds would be in the hundreds and, and sometimes less than a hundred. But it's been it's been a really fascinating experience. I've got not an inch of commercial now, so I have to say that <laughs> it's just been semi-vocational, okay. um, you know, probably even totally vocational if I'm honest. Yeah, you um, do it for free if you have the money, right? I w- yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's like that thing, you know, the, the, the you know the, when you read books by Simon Sinek and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, and um, start with why. I think somebody like him said, "You do a job you love, and you don't work another day of your life." Mm-hmm. You know, and it's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, you know, it's not to say we don't have our frustrations at the moment. No. We're up to our necks in reports and deadlines and this, that, and the other. <laughs> and you sometimes have to sit back and remind yourself what it is that you do. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're off, we're off to the World Cup, believe it or not. Oh, yeah. So we've got a first first project with FIFA. um, Wow. You know, which is helping because, you know, perceptions of FIFA are, 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 Mm -hmm. you know, problematic. Out of that World Cup, right? Yeah. Yeah. But they don't have any, like UEFA and the other confederations, they're there to support football, not fans. But they need to extend that reach to fans because fans drive perceptions of them both. So we're going to be doing some um, some project work in um, in Qatar, uh, just looking at the experience and hopefully helping to help FIFA drive yeah. future tournament experiences up upwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to, I want to go back to the Estonia thing in a second because I think there's a lot of parallels there with it being a national league and John's. Um, sits on the board for the league that we play in, which is called the Midwest Premier League. But geographically, right, it's about the same. I don't. I generally have no idea how big Estonia is, but I know it's sizable and the mid the area the midwest covers is sizable as well. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of correlation there. But um one thing I also want to touch on is when you started you were hugely family focused and family driven. Yeah. Um US soccer, I think, certainly at the lower levels, has to be a family sport rather than a you know a twenty something male sport, which historically yeah. yeah. Um how do you separate the two, the two. It's not that binary, but the two experiences of the, making it family friendly and still appearing appealing to essentially the people that make the atmosphere. The you know the twenty yeah. something beer boys. That's a really good question, and very few clubs have you know have 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 managed that well. I mean, we have um, what the what we see in in, in England uh, in speaking about the football league is a campaign called Enjoy the Match, which insulates. I think that's the word I was looking for. Um, family areas. So it has assets like posters that say, you know, enjoy the match. This is a family area. Please moderate your language. I've even been into a football club where um, above the wash basin, 
you know, in the washroom, there's a sign that says, now wash your mouth out. <laughs> you know? um, so the, the, the clubs are aware of the challenge of, you know, and, and to be fair, when we started, someone on social media um, said, all, all he's doing is trying to sterilise football and take the joy out of it. And I'm thinking it's the absolute opposite. What I'm trying to do is to get more kids the opportunity to get a lifelong connection with football. But unless unless football is prepared to you know, seriously look at the way it does things, it's going to lose these kids. I think where we are at the moment is it's very good at getting the youngest kids in, but its challenge is getting the 12, 13 and 14-year-olds to keep coming. Now, that's where I would introduce Joe Gordons, um, where uh, in Sweden and Stockholm, they have a membership, I think it's 9 to 16-year-olds, where they pay some, it's something like 20, is it is it 20 euros? It might be more than that. I can't remember the exact figure. But what they do is that uh, they split all of this group up per game. And every kid with that membership will have at least one game where they'll spend a pre-match period with the ultras. And the ultras will let get them involved in making the flags, singing the songs, teaching them why we sing the songs, talking about the club's history, what it stands for, past legends and players like that. And hopefully what that does, it bridges the gap between the kid who comes along to meet the mascot, get an autograph and, you know, have a nice hot dog to the kid who actually wants to be there at the front of the stand, you know, create, creating that. And that's the only club I know that does that. Um, interestingly, they also get those kids who are Joe Gordon's fans. Um, they divide them up into however many away games they have. And they each go through an away game season where the host team's ultras do the same thing. So invite them in, you know, to the to the home end, show them what their colours mean, who they are, what their songs are, what they stand for, you know, and it's, you know, no one knows, you know, if that's the answer, but at least it's some, it's somebody that's Different, trying. Right? It's trying, yeah. Yeah, because I think you know, it's, it's being a soccer club, being a football club, being whatever, having a match at three o'clock on a Saturday is no longer enough, right? Existing yeah, yeah, isn't, absolutely. yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you exist today, but you're not going to exist tomorrow if existing is all you want to do. No, but, um... absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, the older I've got, the more kind of ambivalent I've got towards the kind of the, not ambivalent, it's not the word, uh, a bit dismissive of, oh, what am I trying to say? It, there, are some, there are some big issues in the world with, with men, right? Some massive issues in the world with men. Um, and it's that men are not told to respect women when they're young kids. They're not told about self-respect. And, and, and a lot of that creeps into football fandom. I mean, social media can be a horrible place. You see, hear, hear and see some horrible things, you know, and it's, oh, it's a difficult thing to say. I'm not saying it's tolerated, but it's accepted as part of that, of that, football experience it's part of the mystique isn't it almost like it's, well, this it, is a it separate is. part of soccer yeah, of, of society it's yeah and I, differently i actually you know me and my son go to games you know we we, we prefer to go to low league games because it's, or it's Sunderland pure, games is that known, it's right? purer it's, it's more it's more authentic it's purer you don't get you know you get uh, well exactly that non-league games community games grassroots games whatever you want to call it um I find them much more enjoyable than than when the chance of glory is on the horizon, whether it's Champions League, promotion to the Premier League. Yeah. 
there's just so much baggage comes with that that actually gives you a downer on society as a whole. Totally, totally. And, it was and, one of the uh, things, don't, I don't want yeah. to talk about me, but it was one of the things I switched me off from following Tramway was just that tribalism of like, yeah. by virtue of birth, this is my yeah. team and therefore I believe I'm better than you because you live in, I don't know, Doncaster. You yeah. know, crack on, it's, yeah, nonsense. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Doncaster's become a city today, by the way. Oh, oh, congratulations! They're yes. actually on my notes. I've Don't be so Doncaster, but but uh, you one day we'll we'll take them there because they yeah. have they have did Doncaster Rovers have a digital mascot among other things. So that's one of the way they keep in touch with kids, you know, between games, and that was mm -hmm. a godsend for them in um, during the pandemic because otherwise the young fans wouldn't have had any connection with the club. For sure, and I, yeah. I guess that you know we're we're focusing on you know smaller clubs. And, and what can you take from what we've done? Because obviously we started at a pretty high level, as you know, in the EFL. My team get just short of 40,000, you know, for home games. And we, we, we set a record in, um, in the third tier, you know, for getting 46,000 to a game, which is, that's just this particular team because of its yeah, history yeah. and its background. But a lot of the work we do is, is at grassroots levels. So we do a lot of work with the uh, English FA, the Football Association, and it's taking the principles of what we do and applying it to clubs that are between step three and step six. That's not to say they're third tier. You take the four tiers and then you start with step one, which is the National League, step two, which is National League North-South, et cetera, et cetera. So we're looking at those clubs from three to six where some in six might not have anyone coming to games other than friends of the players and their family. And step three could could have five, six hundred, maybe seven hundred. Um, and the challenge that we've got there is that they're volunteer run. Their focus is getting games on right now in cost of living crisis. Um, you know, coach cost is is really prohibitive. Stru clubs are really struggling. The league design means that a team in London in a very low level might have to go to Plymouth in Devon. You know, and it's costing a fortune. So we, we have some particular issues right now. But the, the volunteer-led ethos of most of the clubs means that um, subconsciously they're trying to get the next game on. And the challenge with those clubs is to create some breathing space just to consider what we can do to grow the club. And so, you know, we did our assessment visits. We've done it in two or three periods. We're right in the middle of a, a 250 club program. Well, not in the middle. We've just started. It's year one of a 250 club program. But if I was to characterize what we what we saw or what we found, and I'm generalizing here, but I'd say this was the case at eight out of 10 clubs, is that when we get there, it's a great experience. There's a friendly clubhouse you know, where there's space for kids to mess around. There's a TV so you can watch the Premier League game. There's quiet space. There's a bar. You can drink local beer if you want. You know, you can get some freshly made food. Or you can go to the tea hut outside, you know, get a pie and a cup of tea or whatever you want. You've got a friendly fella selling programs. The kids can run around because there's loads of free space. You can change ends at half time, which you can't do. You can drink within view of the pitch, which you can't do in, in, in England at higher levels of the game. Um, you can stand with the away fans. You can gather together. You can both go into the bar together. You know, all, all of those things. Parking is probably free if you get there early enough. How much of this is promoted by those clubs? None of it. Just the football. So you look at the website and you think it's a football club that put football on. And that's the first problem. There's very little awareness of that external perception. And what we're trying to say to these clubs is, it's like you both said at the start, it's present yourself as a community hub. 
you know, how many of these clubs have a landing page which says, welcome to our club, this is who we are. This is where we come from. This is what we stand for. And here's our values. And by the way, we bring our values to life and the things that we do on a match day, we do this, that, and the other. Yeah. We support this charity because they do this, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you don't get that. You just go on the website, next fixture, if you're lucky. And when you go onto social media, they might have a thing that says next game, three o'clock Saturday, opponents, click here for tickets if they have online tickets and more and more of them do, but nothing more than that. The first thing, the first big change I'd say we made, and I, I don't blow our, our own trumpet very often, but um, was that in 2005, no English football club at any professional level had a new fan page, uh, you know, page that said you're new to the club or, you know, and then subsections, bringing kids, bringing your elderly parents. Uh, do you have a disability? You know, this sort of thing. Not one. Now, just about everyone has. You know, I've, I've been Stoke City, Southampton, Portsmouth and Leighton Orient in the last few weeks. And all of them have this. And more mm -hmm. and more of the grassroots clubs are doing it now. So welcome to our club. Because they've got the potential to be community hubs. But, you know, I know you said before, I think, John, you said as well, you're very interested in uh, or, or kind of, we tend to make the assumption that that community sense is already there at those clubs. But the fact is, that's the existing fan base. It's getting older. You know, yes, some of the clubs have got lots of junior teams, so they bring them in on a match day. They encourage them to come, you know, the coaches get them to come and see the senior team playing. And a lot of clubs use that to their advantage. But in general terms, they don't present themselves as open for business. And, you know, so when people say, well, how can we improve the fan experience? I just go, as far as saying, just tell people about you. Tell people who you are. Tell people what you do. Tell people, you know, have a menu of food. What beer do you sell? You know, that sort of thing. And that, that that's the biggest barrier we see when we're working with grassroots clubs and, and you know, and smaller clubs. And, and, and funny enough, the ones that have just started tend to be the ones that have an idea about that because they've got that startup mentality. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, we've, been around for, we've been around for 80, 90 yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and, and so it, it can be, it's, it can, it, it's, it's almost equally as frustrating as it was in the start with, with the larger clubs, the professional clubs, because you think you've got all this fantastic stuff going on, but you don't tell anybody about it. And, mm -hmm. you know, they, I, I don't know whether they think that advocacy doesn't exist, but we know it does. We know that when you put a great yeah. experience on, I think, I think one thing that we've picked up is that before the pandemic, British football fans would see a fan zone as a really interesting and attractive added extra. You know, whoa, this is great. They've got a fan zone. We can have a couple of beers outside before we go into the game, listen to some live music, you know, eat some interesting street food that's much better than what you get inside the stadium. Now, I think fans regard it as a basic expectation, and that's just in three years. So it shows you how, how, how high fan expectations mm -hmm. are rising, and that's another thing in England that we're, that we're, we're coming to terms with. My, my two kids who, who helped me and Anna back in 2006, one's 27 and the other's 22 now. You know, now they wouldn't go. My son is a, is a football obsessive and he loves the, the minutiae of going to different clubs. And he's one of our most experienced assessors. Um, but, you know, he's not a vegan, but he likes to mix and match. And most of his mates do. They eat, vegan, they eat the famous vegan sausage roll from Greg's. You know, yep. they're not vegan. Yeah. 
they'll eat fish, he'll have meat, he'll yeah. do that. But they want it, they want to see something which is of appeal, you know, that appeals to them. If they find it's just a, a, a pie, a burger, and a cup of tea, they're not going to be that interested. Mm, and we sure. know that Generation Z, you know, have, have, have got expectations of social awareness in the club so that there should be some kind of social purpose. There should be a, a clear way in which the club is benefiting the community. They expect the clubs to have an environmental plan to understand how important that is. They expect clubs to be thinking about um, health and well-being, and they see the players as being important spokespersons uh, for that. They see the club as being conscious that they are the generation that's been left behind financially. They don't have any money. They've been frozen out of buying a house. Many of them can't even afford rent, um, and this is in this country. Um, so what what are they doing to acknowledge that and to try and change that? So the football club that says, well, all we're going to do is actually, you know, have a lower price for 16-year-olds and, and try. The, the clubs talk about it as let's get the pricing right from 12 to 18, and that's how we retain them. But they're not, they'll not retain them at all. The ones who are, you know, died in the wool fans, whose dad and granddad and great-granddad might, might do it. But, you know, for, for this next generation yeah. of kids, the club has to be more than a club. And whether it goes down the Bohemian, San Pauli route of being campaigning, kind of, you know, um, activist clubs, mm -hmm. whether it goes down the Lewis route of being standing for equality, you know, it, it's got to be a reason. Yeah, even if it's just known for a fantastic pre-match party. Do you know yeah, exactly. Even on just the match day, go the match day experience alone. Just the Saturday afternoon, the football is only two hours, right? You, there's yeah. only so much you can do in two hours. But the match day experience is starts at twelve o'clock, whenever you know you you put in your your shirt and your 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 scarf and your rosette and your whatever. Yeah. That's when it starts, and it goes right the way through until your your fish and chip dinner, right? It's the, yeah, the two I, hours. I, is... a, a friend of mine, uh, Bart Wiley, I met him in Australia, funnily enough, at a conference many years ago, and he was working uh, for Seattle Sounders. Um, he's, left, he's left the industry now, but he told me some interesting things about the early days of the Sounders and what they did to try and get the rest of the city to be aware of them, because obviously you've got a big football team, you've got a big, big baseball team, you know, who are these little upstarts? And one of the things they did was, um, they did two things which I thought was really good. One was they have they have a day a year where they get everybody to colour the, the town. I think it's green, isn't it, the Sounders? So they'd get yeah. – people would wake up and there'd be scarves everywhere on the national statues, monuments, whatever it is. They'd do that. So they'd, And that was a way of kind of getting the movement from a small group to getting it out. And then they do this other thing where they had a brass band that would play in the centre of the town and walk to the game. So yeah, even when the march the match. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the march the match. And I, and I, you know, immediately thought they probably think that's something that happens at every club in England. Mm -hmm. And they were fantastic <laughs> ideas that people yeah, in England. Totally. What a great idea. Colour the town red. Never thought of that. Everybody go out overnight, put your scarves totally. out there, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think going back, I think going back to that, the small club, there is the challenge of being more than a club and deciding what is that going to be? What specifically are we, are we going to do exactly? It's on the little wall there behind you, along with a very, Strange picture of an old man. Oh, that's me. <laughs> yeah. um, There's very few images of you on Google. It's very strange. I don't know what you've done with. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's why. That's my. That's my old Peter Gabriel lookalike phase. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, no. So, 
and so that's one side. Then the other dimension is creating a fan experience that's going to want people to that's going to want people to come back. And you know, obviously, we look very closely at that whole journey. You know, from arrival, um, we look at uh, travel. We just look to see how much clubs are making it easy for people. One other thing I think is well, two other things I think are really important. One is feedback. Um, the British have an aversion to asking for feedback. I think they think they'll be offended. Yeah, um, testify for that. Uh, AZ Alkmaar in the Netherlands. Obviously, they're an Eredivisie team with a big history, but they they send an email, a short survey, three or four question survey to everyone who's bought a ticket online for every game. So two hours after, it just says, "Give us a score for today. Why do you say that? What could we do better?" You know, very very basic. But because they do it with everybody after every game. They might not only get twelve percent response, but over the years they're able to understand how variables such as bad weather, kickoff time, perceived performance of the team, quality of the opposition, time of kickoff—you know—all of these things. Well, they can they can take those variables out because they understand them. Um, so I think I think feedback's important. One club that you should take a look at because they do some incredible things is Durham Women. Um, Durham Women um, were only founded nine years ago. And they routinely get six, seven hundred people coming to see a second tier women's team. And it's all because of the focus they put on the fan experience. They'll, you know, I come from Durham, very close to Durham, and it's not a well off part of the country. So they'll put a tweet out that includes the bus from Sunderland, Newcastle and Durham, the ticket price, the average cost of something to eat and a program. And then they'll say for this, you can come and support. The, you know the prominent women's team in the northeast. They also yeah. have, and I love this. They have a "You Said We Did" page on the website. Um, what they do is they collect feedback. Some of it's informal. Some of it will be an email from someone who had an idea. Some of it will be picked up formally. But what they do is every now and again they update it to say, "Here's what you're telling us about the experience. Here's what we're going to do to fix that. Here's a couple of improvements that have come online from you know last year's suggestions." And a big thank you all for for doing this. Um, the last one, I think, if you look, it's Dur- you'll find the website Durham Women. But I think there was they're sharing some feedback on things they sell in the in the club shop, you know, to um, to meet the needs of the people there. They do a brilliant uh, match day guide that comes out before every game. That's on on social media that talks about everything they're going to be doing at the game and why you need to get there early. And you know, they started from scratch. They had nothing. They didn't come. They didn't have a hundred-year history. They were founded in something like June 2013, and now they've got six, seven hundred people. And they yeah. beat Manchester United in the Intercontinental Cup just last week as well. You know, and I mean, I'm a Sunderland fan, but I, I find myself more, you know, I support mm-hmm. women, not Sunderland women. I support yeah. Durham yeah. because they're closer to me, and I like what they do. Um, so we've talked about. Feedback. We've talked about what does the club stand for, and we've talked about the fan experience. But I think the key thing is the people. And one of the things that is, I, I guess, in in football parlance, an open goal, is addressing one of the big issues we have in grassroots football in the UK, and that is that you'll have clubs trying to get volunteers to come into a variety of jobs. And Nick, you you'll remember this. So everything from cash management. Uh, oh, do excuse me. That was my. Uh, I'll switch that off from cath management to running the bar to looking after the away team of uh, you know officials to welcoming the referee preparing the pitch 
getting the dressing rooms ready, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are, you know, 101 jobs to be done on a match day. And many clubs actually recruit very well because they they get the job down. They actually say, do you have two hours a week? If you do, then this job's perfect for you. Have you got an afternoon a week? Then this job's perfect for you. Are you Saturdays free? Then come and help us on a match day. You know, so there's a lot of thought goes into it. But there's a real, um, I don't know what if it's dichotomy, but right in the middle of this, there's a an open goal. And that is that most people I know don't want to do any of these jobs that the clubs that, you know, that are advertising for. And the funny thing is the one job that's missing that needs doing is a greeter, is a host, a club ambassador, somebody to welcome people. Are oh, you new? Have you been here before? Great to see you. Thanks, thanks for coming. Yeah. Um, you know. What do you, what would you'll, you know, you'll know the Savannah Bananas, right? You're the experience. Oh, I know the Savannah yes. Bananas. Right? Yeah, I, like we had Jesse on a long time ago, um, and I lo- we love what they're doing, right? But the, one of the things that stuck with me is just the, the use of child labour, right? Of just sticking yeah. that five-year-old or eight-year-old and giving high-fives to everybody that came in. That's such an easy but, thing but to it, do. I mean, you know, it is, but it just works so well. No, we we yeah. did um, probably my favourite ever job um, was uh, this spring we've been working with the welsh fa and um we we were trying to communicate the value of having this ambassador team at games so they took us to our word and said come on have a go so we did the two fifa world cup qualifiers that wales won to qualify for their first world cup in 64 years um and our job we had bright pink jackets on because that color would stand out because the welsh fans are wearing red Stewards are often in tabards that are luminous green or pink or or yellow. And our job was just to make people happy. So we would have little pin badges in our pockets, which we would surprise kids and families with. We would take pictures of families. We would pose. We'd have fun with the security people. You know, we'd pose for pictures. We'd have, you know, just mess around, just hug people, anybody. Just, Just be there to make people feel happy. Now, a game like that when Cardiff City Stadium was full to the rafters and everybody's there for one reason only, that's to see Wales qualify. You know, we could possibly be seen as a nice add-on. But then when you when you take the size of the event down, so we then did it for the Welsh Welsh uh, Wales women, and they were playing a FIFA qualifier in Clenethley. Maybe 3,000 people were there. The impact that a team of eight ambassadors made was, I mean, it, we, the feedback we had was amazing. It was actually, it was quite moving because... We knew there was one main entrance to the stadium, so we could greet everybody as they arrived. We could actually meet them at the car park, walk them under the tunnel to where the stadium is. And then at the end, we created a V to to say thank you to everybody as they left to go to the car park and to leave the stadium. And I ended up, I don't know, I have a friend called Cameron Hughes, who you might know in America. He's the guy, he's the dancing guy inside stadiums. He takes his T-shirt off. Cameron's a good, you ought to get him on. He's a great guy. I ended up channeling him in the second half. I was running up and down the, the stands, getting the kids to shout, Wales, Wales. And, you know, I, ne- I nearly uh, had a heart attack by the time yeah. I finished. <laughs> but that's the big challenge because you have a massive opportunity, you know, which is to sell the club, to make people really feel personally connected to the club. And you've got a, a massive amount of people out there who would love to do something like that, but nobody's seen the opportunity, you know, and it's sure. it's... Uh, I think it's the it's the you get people say, Oh, it's really difficult to train our stewards, you know, if you go to high levels of the game. And it is because they're there for safety, security and service, but the first two come first. And it's very difficult to get somebody 
100% into that role of, you know, just basically being the big greeter. And, and that's why I think it's a massive opportunity for smaller clubs. You, you know, it could be a fan who's really proud of the club. You know, it, it, it could be a role for a, an outgoing sports marketing student. It could even be someone from the municipality, somebody in the town, you know, who's really proud that there's a football team there and just turns up. And, you know, I love it. We Absolutely. just stand there and we do this when people walk up to us, you know. I think a lot of English people probably think that's a bit too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, so I can't. I can't imagine most of the British fan base thinking that's a good idea. It's like, oh my God, what, what are you doing, sir? But, yeah, but no, works, I love it. But it works really well. So you it know, really you put does. that together. What is? You've got to be more than a club. So what's that going to be? You've got to be driving value. You can't directly influence attendances. You focus on making people valued, and then attendances will look after themselves. You think about the experience as a journey. You know. You get feedback, make it as easy as possible, as, as I said. But most of all, you have somebody there who's going to make people coming along feel special. You know, yes, and I think that's, I think that's the, um, obviously, there's, this has to be conveyed in communications. Like I said, you need a first-time fan guide. You need a, a landing page talking about the club and, and who you are. Um, and there's loads of little things, you know, that you can do. There's lots of fantastic little best practices that you can do after that. But yeah. I think they're the main pillars. You get them in place and you've got a chance, I think. Agreed. John, I'm conscious that this is the first podcast that possibly that you've ever not spoken on so far. So um, John, <laughs> John has the ability to make make questions last for about half a podcast. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to seeing what he's got. But um, Mark, this has been uh, phenomenal so far. I feel like we could go on for another 17 hours, but I know John will have questions, so I'm going to no, give I, him the floor. It, yeah, to be honest... Um... I do. I'm going to summarize it, and I I do want to get you back on, Mark. Even if we don't record that conversation, um, just because you, you I want can charge to... for that one, though, Mark. That's all right. That's, yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, I think there's. A, I think there's... Yeah, you know, take me to Chicago, buy me a beer. That will do. Well, I was going to say, if you want to come assess a uh, a lower league match uh, an hour outside of Chicago, we'd love to have you. So yeah, we. I tell you what, don't you don't need to give me any encouragements. But if, um, you, if you need an American arm, though, Mark, just generally no, speaking. I, yeah. I, well, there's a guy I know very well who's in South Bend, South Bend Lions. Yeah. Um, guy called Chris River. Do you know Chris? But I know the club, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he yeah. he's one of the minor owners of the club because he yeah. knew the the guy who who's owned it. So Chris spends a lot of time out there, and I know Chris very well. We've known each other for years, and he's probably more on the communications and marketing and the branding side, you know, um, but they're doing some interesting things as well. Go on, so I just, I want to throw two, two quick things at you, Mark, and then we can, and we can wrap up and follow up down the road. Um, for us, one of our challenges is the, our season in the Midwest is a summer season. So it's about three months, which gives us two challenges. Number one, um, in stadium fan engagement, fan experience, is limited to seven, 10, maybe 12 home games a year. Yeah. So that we're, we're limited on, on that. Um, so Nick is in charge of all things, social media, marketing, website, all that stuff. And fan experience for us has to be year round, yeah. even though there's no sport, you know, we're, yeah. we're off season for eight and a half months. Um, so I think those are some of the specific challenges that we have is is creating the you know we've talked a lot today about in stadium experience how do we continue to engage you know the other, other than the 90 minutes once a week what do we do yeah. for eight and a half months to continue to be uh yeah that community hub 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's a very good question, and you know, I can't I can't answer it in any great detail here. But I think the clue is in that more than a soccer club, it's the values that you choose to have. It's the it's the contribution you choose to to make to the community, which then becomes your, um, if you like, physical embodiment during the period when you're not playing football. I mean, that's the one of the things I loved about. I've, I've been to see the the, the, the Cubs are my team because they were the first baseball team I saw. Um, went to a few others on a on a subsequent trip, but um, I could feel myself wavering with the Mets because they sound they felt very blue collar and you know Bruce Springsteen to me, and I quite like that. Uh, but the Cubbies were were my love, and I think it was the fact that I think it might have been Anna who said something like, "It's like it's like a fantastic day out with a baseball game going on in the background," and I thought that was such a good description of of the power of of American sport, in as much as it is about community. When it, especially baseball, you could argue that that's that's American social history wrapped up in you know four hours. Um, so I think there's there's there is something in terms of people's expectations that there's going to be more. But I do think it is about about you know what you become, and perhaps you know the team you launch uh, a team in a different sport that plays in those you know in that period of time. Estonia has a similar challenge. It's the other way around in Estonia. They they play a summer season, but because the weather's so fierce, in um, you know you can get you know you can get deep snow at Easter, you know. So they'll play on a plastic pitch until June. Then they'll play on grass till September. Then they'll go back to plastic for the last two months of the season. So they have an issue because sometimes these grounds are several miles apart. So they have a similar issue, and it isn't easy at all. A lot of that is about communication. Um, it, you know, it's about free hot tea. In the early months, you know, and um, and free cold drinks because it can get very warm in the summer there. Um, but I think I do think that's a, I do think that's a that's a really interesting challenge. But I'm going to give some thought to that and see and see who I've seen that you know that that kind of does that well. Yeah, and I think that you, we touched on volunteers. I think that's also the the hard part of it. You know, in trying to lead the club is. You know, where do we spend our um, our emotional efforts? You know, not just in financial resources, but you know, in in reality, the the nine month or eight month off season mm. is a greater period of time. So, do we spend our energy like Nick and I do this podcast self servingly because we enjoy it, and to help the club, but to help other clubs? Like this is a thing we only do in the off season. This yeah. is sort of our post season content that yeah. we do. Um, but I think that's where it gets hard. Like, where do you put your mm. Boy, do we do we invest in resources uh, again in time and money to help be better for nine months, or do we focus on the match day experience and spend? Do we spend money and time? Like it's a little bit of both, I know, but like, do we yeah. go? Hey, we have X amount of dollars. Do we do we build a new website or do we buy a bounce house? Mm. Like those are those are the types of real conversations that we have. Yeah, because you know, in yeah, you want both, but. Sometimes at this level, you just have to. Your pick. Yeah, it's I mean, a gamble anyway. You've got the you've got that growth mentality, though. I think that's what you've got. You both sit there talking about these things and thinking about it, and a lot of clubs don't. A lot of clubs' mentality is let's just get the next game done. Let's get the next game after that done. And you know, it 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 it, it is a challenge. There's a hell of a lot of administration that clubs do. It's less than it was, and it's a lot of it is automated these days. But it still makes it very difficult. But I think that is a challenge, and. My honest answer is that I think it's it's about lifting it a level above the club and, and really articulating very clearly in a couple of sentences 
what the club is and what does it stand for. And that will hopefully, you know, introduce or summon up a few themes or ideas that say, well, we, we could be doing this, you know, during that month. We could be we could be using our, our time to do something which is related to our values, but which, you know, equally helps the community. It's it's a it's a really interesting one in Moldova. Um the one that connected, strangely enough, because again, not many people go to games outside of Sheriff Tiraspol, which isn't really in Moldova, because it's in um a little Russian enclave in the middle of Moldova. Things get very interesting in Eastern Europe when it comes to that. Um I was in uh, Armenia assessing a game at Yerevan. Um, they took us for a drive outside of the city and there were all these fresh, freshly laid cemeteries and graves. And I'm thinking these are all very new. And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we have a war with Azerbaijan every 10 years. These are recruits that, you know, conscripted kids. And you, what? You know? So it's, it's, but in Moldova, animal welfare, as it is in a lot of former Soviet countries, um, people can't afford to look after their pets. So you get a lot of animals just roaming wild. And, um, one of the things they're doing in Moldova is getting players to speak up about animal welfare, you know, visiting animal welfare sanctuaries, um, talking about it, getting that message across. And, you know, we were saying this could be something the whole league could do. This could be something that the league becomes known for. And and that, that for me is, and the last thing I'd probably say is I, I wrote, I've been saying this for so long that it never occurred to me to ask the question of my own team. So I wrote a piece for um, Roker Report on just asking why, what are we? And it, it was it was well received. And a lot of people said, yeah, it's a really good question. If we answered that question, we'd probably find a much more positive way forward for our club if we knew what we were, what we existed for, what we stood for and what our values were. You know, it, it is just all about the football at Sunderland. The football's great, 50,000 people turn up. If it isn't, 18,000 people turn up. And we've got to get out of that cycle. Um, the way that I characterise it often is draw a picture where you'll see football club and then you'll have communications, marketing, ticketing, you know, playing side, what have you, and actually say, no, put the football club down there and put the community at the top. And the football club is just one of, you know, the many things that feed into that that community idea. It's there's so much that can be done. It's almost frustrating, right? And it's just like, obviously, some of it costs money. And yeah, like you you came into it at the top level, but you've alluded to the fact that you can do high fives, you can do email questionnaires, you can be there and literally be on the ground and ask a damn question. It's about well, giving a shit. This yeah. is why we do two visits when we do our visit programs. We do the first visit. We don't say things like, "Oh, you need to you need to invest in a twenty meter uh, LED screen." You know, we're not we're not about that. We're about all of those things, Nick. That's why we give clubs a couple of months between the first and the second visit because nothing we're recommending couldn't be done in those two months because ninety percent of it doesn't cost anything. Um, you know, some of it involves some some human resource, as it were, to get things done and put some time aside to do things. Maybe a couple of chats with a couple of um, partners, but it's not meant to be. You know, we're talking about things that any club at any level could do. Realistic. Sure. And, it's uh, easy because when when you look when you Google fan engagement, fan experience, right? So many of the things are like the the, the, London, the London Broncos did this, the Cincinnati Bengals did this. They'd had this yeah. fantastic 
yeah. VR session and all that. No, like great, go crazy, and you again, you're making memories there. But well, let me talk about making memories for little people. Let, one of the things we do, our assessors, we have a, we have a WhatsApp group. So for for each of the different programs, we're doing a rugby one, and not a grassroots one, and we're doing an EFL one at the moment. So you might have 60, 60 people all together on three different groups, some bigger than others. And on the match day, we actually exchange photographs of things we've seen and we'll have conversations. And I don't know why we didn't do it before, probably because I'm too old to see the, the value of these things. But it's proven fantastic at capturing little things that are just brilliant that we'd never seen before. Um, we saw, I think at Burnley, they had a, a little map where you can scratch off the clubs you've been to, you know, so you can, when you travel around the country, which was brilliant. But the one that just stood out for me was Cambridge United. Uh, they do some incredible things. They like yourselves. You should connect with Cambridge because they're, they're kind of outside of that university bubble at Cambridge. They're the real Cambridge. Um, they have a stadium with lots of challenges. It's not easy to park around there, but they do some brilliant things. Their mascot greets people at the park and ride. You know, he's, he's brilliant. Um, but I, they had something that somebody took a picture of, which I thought was brilliant. It was basically a bicycle that kids can sit on that powers a smoothie making machine. And so they can make their own smoothies by exerting a bit of exercise on the bike. Now, I don't know about you two gentlemen, Nick and John, but I'd queue up for three quarters of an hour to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the sort of thing that makes, you know, that just makes it all worthwhile because you know, totally. you can get the word out that somebody's doing this and another club will say, that's a brilliant idea. That's, that's yeah. that'll keep our kids queuing and quiet for 20 minutes, you know, and they're doing something really healthy. You and know? It's, it's about being unique, isn't it? It's about standing out from like these clubs that you said, that, like, the, the newer ones have the startup mentality and the older ones don't. Yeah. And that's partly because, like when they when they started out 80 years mm -hmm. ago or whatever um and the soccer clubs in the us that were the same problem of like well existing is enough because we've always existed we don't have to mm -hmm. change even though the yeah. world around us has changed and now we're not it's a horrible thing to say as a purist but we're not in the sport we're not in the soccer business we're not in the sports business we're in the inter entertainment business we're going yeah. against nintendo wii's and the, the mall yeah, and yeah. whatever else and mm -hmm. that that generation there's the, mm, I'm losing my train of thought, but it's we've no, got no, to, no, no, exactly we've got to be said. smarter. Yeah, yeah exactly. You, it, it's got to, it's got to be more than a soccer club because that enough that alone isn't going to be enough. But no. um, hey, guys, I'm more than happy to come on again. I really enjoyed this, as you can see. Bless you. you know, can, uh, I can represent my company when it, the country when it comes to talking. Um, <laughs> some of it sometimes makes sense, but hopefully, you know that. Some of that has been as useful to anyone that's listening. Um, hopefully, hopefully, yeah. Well, all we want to do, like as I said, John's part of the the league um, setup, so like he's always trying to go for best practices. And one of the unique things about American soccer, non-league soccer, is you've got clubs that are clubs in the English British terminology of like youth yeah. clubs and the clubhouse and history and whatever else. And then you've got other people that are happy just to roll a ball out on a Saturday at three p.m., kick a ball, win a trophy, and go home and not engage yeah. at all. And that's fine, right? That yeah. works. Yeah, but, um, it's, it's it's a big it's a big melting pot, isn't it? Yeah, um, totally. Um, for sure. All right. Um, thank you, John. Really really before we close off, no, really, really appreciate it. It's been great. Uh, I hope we can keep in touch, and uh, I'm I'm going to probably pick your brain about a couple of things uh, as we get ramped yeah, no, up I'd next spring. Definitely, definitely like to catch up. And we we miss Chicago. We were there in 2008. It's a long time now. Well, um, well, it's, it's time. 
Yeah. Well, at that point, they hadn't won the World Series for 100 years, but thankfully they did it after 108 years. So that <laughs> was... Yeah, but they've gone back to garbage now. It's all right. Oh, no, I... really don't need to worry about it. It's like Sunderland no. winning the FA Cup in 73. It, that, it... You don't need anything else. It's it's there. You can tell oh, yeah. you about it, you know. I know it's like Tramway winning the playoffs in like five, six years ago. I know, I know exactly what you mean. Just you yeah, we're not talking about the Papa John's Trophy final last season. That's okay, guys. Fun, but... It's early time here. You guys, yeah, indeed. Indeed. thank you so much, Mark. Mark. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care. Take care.